Hi, She 2.0 listeners. This is Ramona. And I'm Jackie. Jackie, I'm really excited about today's episode um, because it's something that you and I have talked about and have been scared about because we've seen a lot of stuff in the media around Alzheimer's and dementia and the relationship with that and menopause. And so we're really excited to have a very smart lady who studies women's brains on tonight. <laughs> um, so we are joined in this episode by Dr. Jillian Einstein, who's a faculty member in the Department of Psychology and the founder of the Collaborative Specialization in Women's Health at the University of Toronto, our local U of T. Jillian's resume is so impressive and so long, but most importantly, she studies women's brain health and aging, and that is an area that we are super interested in and very, very worried about. Yeah, so have a listen to Dr. Jillian Einstein, and we think you're going to learn a lot tonight. So in part of our own personal experiences and our research into menopause, Jack and I have been extremely interested in the connection between menopause and our own brain health. So we're really scared, but also glad to have you here with us, Jillian. Well, I'm, de I'm delighted to be here and thank you for inviting me. Um, menopause is such an important topic and it's actually more complicated than anybody thinks. So I'm really happy to try to sort it out. We're glad. And you know, it's funny because every episode we do, we think we've learned so much and then a guest comes on and we learn more. So we're excited to learn a lot from you today. And I know that one of the things, one of the things off the top, you say that there's many types of menopause. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, I can. Um, you know, menopause has become a catch-all term for um, the cessation of ovarian function. But there are lots of reasons why the ovaries stop working. Um, and they can stop working at any age. Yeah. Um, so the most common menopause is what the North American Menopause Society calls spontaneous menopause. And that's what happens to most of us and what you might think of as natural menopause occurring, you know, around the average age of 51, 52. Um, and it is a cessation of ovarian function, but it's very slow, it's very gradual. And in fact, the ovaries never actually stop making what might surprise you, testosterone. And it's testosterone that actually gets converted into um, estrogens. So with the ovaries continuing to make some testosterone, even in spontaneous menopause, most women are continuing to make some form of what's called 17-beta estradiol or estrogen. That's the most common menopause. The North American Menopause Society also defines um, uh, other forms of menopause. One is surgical menopause, which can happen at any time, but um, in some cases happen long before women would ordinarily go into spontaneous menopause. In, it happens in their 30s and 40s for various reasons, often reasons having to do with cancer 
or now um, reasons having to do with um, the increased risk of cancer because of um, certain gene mutations. Um, and then there's something called um, premature ovarian failure, which can happen at any age. It often puts women in menopause, but they're young as well. And, and premature ovarian failure is something that sort of waxes and wanes. Sometimes it's called failure, but then the ovaries come back for some unexplained reason and women start having their period again. So if you can see now from at least a number of the perspective of how much estrogen you have floating around in your body, which is made by the ovaries, these three different types of menopause actually can have three very different effects through yeah. the varying levels of estrogens that you have. The other thing is that spontaneous menopause is on a background of aging. And, you know, as we age, lots of things slow down, not just our ovaries. Mm -hmm. And so even though some of the early symptoms of menopause, if you have them, spontaneous menopause, if you have them, are, can be like these other types of menopauses, oftentimes um, it's, it's, much, it's much more benign, and, and much less uh, immediate, and sometimes it doesn't, they, these symptoms don't resolve, but most of the time they do. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, we talk a lot about menopause and perimenopause in the podcast, but, and we've even talked about, we had a guest on who had premature ovarian failure. Um, I mean, I talk a lot about my experience of having an ovarectomy and, and I mean, I've been part of the research studies at the Einstein lab for that reason. Um, and then, yeah, you're, you know, you're, I guess your natural menopause. And it's interesting because I think, you know, it does also factor into, we all have a different experience with menopause in general, if it's naturally, but then you factor in those other things and everyone, like my experience is so much different than others because my ovarians were taken out prematurely before I was 40. And I was right in menopause. So I haven't experienced the long perimenopause that say Jack is probably experiencing or some of our listeners are experiencing. I'm interested to know with the different types of menopause, like how they, how they affect our brains differently. Yeah. So um, first I, I want to say we actually, we wrote a little review paper looking at um, papers on menopause that were looking at memory and what the different outcomes of the studies were depending not on which type of menopause they looked at, but whether they combined the menopauses. So the problem with this term menopause is all of a sudden, all these different physiological states are called menopause. Right. And, and they all, everybody gets combined. So we, when we did this review, we saw studies that included young women with ovarian removal, young wow. women with uh, premature ovarian failure, and also older women. And it's totally inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because everybody gets confused by this term menopause. Yeah, that um, makes sense. So 
we're learning that the term itself has these overtones. So for example, uh, as you said, your experience is different than the experience of somebody who has spontaneous menopause. It happens with aging and it's associated with aging and it's relatively gradual. But you're being told that you're in menopause and you're being treated like you're in menopause most of the time. Mm -hmm. And yet you're a young woman. At least to me, you're a young woman. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> young. And, and, and the overtones of the sort of, as, as, as some theoret theoretical people might say, the popular imaginary, the popular imagination of what menopause is, all of a sudden also gets thrust on younger women. And um, I think that's, that's not correct. And it's, uh, I, I, I think it's not right. I think we should start acknowledging that, you know, there is this, there is this sort of um, overall term that we use for it, but I, I don't think that's accurate. Mm -hmm. They're very different physiologies. Um, and do they affect our brain differently then? Like say someone like me who's gone through an overectomy, do, do, I guess for lack of a better term, do the symptoms affect me differently than say someone in Jack's position who's maybe going through menopause more naturally? Yeah, well, one of the things that's been found in, in epidemiological studies of women who've had their ovaries removed prior to the age of 48 um, is that, and remember, um, I don't want to alarm you. This is a large sample of women who had their ovaries removed for any reason whatsoever um, with varying education levels, um, varying emotional backgrounds, et cetera. So um, it's a very different kind of study than the study we're doing. But in this large study, they found that um, women who had their ovaries removed before 48 um, had a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, mm -hmm. and different kinds of dementias. So this is really what spurred on our study because we wanted to see, well, if this is the case and it's, it's not, you know, it's not a huge number, it's just a significant number. Mm -hmm. If this is the case, we really wanted to understand what are the variations along the way and how do you get from the ovarian removal to a serious memory decline? And the good news is in the population we're studying, which includes you, um, there is a significant but, but small change in a few concrete tasks. So we're not talking about, you know, the task that President Trump took, the MOCA in which he declared he got a perfect score and it's used <laughs> to diagnose mild cognitive impairment. Like I tell people, <laughs> If, if my physician had me take the mocha, I wouldn't be telling people about it. <laughs> so we're not even talking about tests like that. We're talking about very sophisticated, single neuropsych tests um, that have been used to look at sex differences and changes with the menstrual cycle and stuff. Um, and on those, two very, two very specific domains seem to be affected. One is verbal memory, the memory of, for words and stories. Yes. And yes. the other, yeah, 
That's, yes. that's the nasty one where you lose the nouns first and you just <laughs> oh, God. You don't remember common day items. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the other one is actually it's called spatial working memory. And it's sort of the kind of memory that you need to remember where you parked your car on. I was going to say <laughs> where I find my cell phone every day. Is that the one? Keys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so true. And so we've published the study now, and we're gonna we're gonna tell everybody at the thank you night for the people who participated and who continue to participate in our study because we've got lots of ideas, mm-hmm. including ideas about um, potential interventions. Um, so um, we published this, and you know, as I said, it's still within the range of normal. Yes. Right. Yeah. But it's just for. Our, our cohort, which includes you, is a very high-functioning, highly educated, pretty high socioeconomic status. So it's a small but significant change over many women. Some, some individual women will not be changing, right? They're in the mean and the standard deviation. Yeah, and I think that, you know, even though it's probably considered within a normal range, for those of us it, it feels significant to us. I think, you know, Jack, we talk about it all the time. It's the yeah. one thing that we both, <laughs> we, we, fear. Both, we fear. I mean, it was part of why I agreed to be part of this study. One, I have a mother with dementia. So that's already just in the back of my brain. I'm terrified of it. Um, but like the other thing of knowing that connection uh, between, you know, an overrectomy or early menopause and, and this decline in my cognition or memory was really scary for me. And if there was something that I could do to help mitigate those symptoms, like, man, I'll do anything, you know? And, and it's also too, it's, and I think, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's also confusing because we talk about brain fog and we talk about memory loss. Um, when we go through perimenopause and menopause is, I wonder if the difference is kind of what you had said earlier. One is, um, I can't remember the term. See, there we go about losing your words. And the other one is about spatial. Yeah. Spatial memory. Spatial memory. Like, is there a difference between brain fog and memory loss or, or are those two just sort of interchangeable? Um, well, I, I think it's complicated. A lot of people who talk about brain fog um, are also are people who've had chemotherapy, for example. But actually, that field is all mess. It's all a mess too because chemotherapy, tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors are all mixed up together, and they're all acting slightly differently. So, but that's another story. But so, people who uh, this is just to, by way of saying. It's been investigated in that area, this, this um, phenomenon of brain fog, and it usually comes to something called executive function, yes. um, which is, you know, planning ahead, um, um, keeping numbers in mind, keeping locations in mind, um, and that's all what neuros- neuroscientists would call frontal lobe function. So, right. so brain fog may primarily be frontal lobe function, but I don't know that it's actually been studied well enough to know that for sure. Um, this, it, it, 
this this uh, difficulty with remembering words and remembering uh, the lo location of things, um, that would really be considered particular memory issues that are diagnosable, you know, with neuropsych tests. And so it's it's really, I don't think of the women we're studying, I don't think of you guys as exactly having brain fog. I mean, you might describe it as brain fog, but when I, when I look at um, the, the results, I see it as not a whole brain problem, but a very, you know, a couple of very specific memory domains, mm -hmm. which means that other memory domains are doing just fine. Thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I, sorry, I'm just curious to go back to the study that you had mentioned before, uh, where we confuse we can we cause confusion by lumping all menopause together. Um, when they were looking at menopause and studying, I guess our brain activity during it, do, is there a difference between perimenopause and postmenopause in the study, or is it all sort of like, is it all combined together because it you know we're experiencing the decrease in estrogen and so yeah. like we're not differentiating between before and after. Yeah, no, um, this is a very hot topic in menopause and the brain research right now. And people are actually doing studies looking at both at brain regions and performance on different kinds of what we call neuropsychological tests of memory, pre-menopause, perimenopause, and at-menopause. And there are just a very few studies on this, but what they show is that in certain memory domains, uh, primarily one that's called associative memory, which is like, you know, you see somebody, you, you associate their face with their name, mm -hmm. um, and maybe you, you, you're not so good at that anymore. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that kind of uh, visual association memory. They're finding changes in visual association memory um, over these three, um, um, periods. What they, what, what we all have to remember is that most of the changes, while they're, you're, they're statistically significant, again, there's a very wide range of what's normal. Mm -hmm. And so most of them would still be within the normal range. They're not impaired. Right. You know, right. there's, it's not an experiment. This is, and actually this is one of the things that I'm beginning to worry about with some of these studies, because on the one hand, I think, yeah, it's really important to characterize what's happening to women's brains at different ages. But in doing so, I really don't want us to pathologize it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, people come up with coping skills, people, um, People change, you know, change their lifestyle. People can start doing things that they haven't done before that really begin to enhance their memory. At the time of day when you're tested makes a difference. Right. But, you know, I, you know, I, I disagree in terms of pathologizing it because I think that there's never ever a discussion about it. There hasn't been for so long. And so there are women who are noticing some changes that may feel significant to them. I know I did. And I felt like, oh my God, I'm getting dementia. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, and then it was talking to other people who'd 
gone through something similar that I realized like, oh no, this is like a brain thing. And like, what can I do to support my brain health during this transition? So I think it's more about acknowledging women who feel like, you know, for lack of a better term, that we're all going crazy or that we're getting dementia or that, you know, like this increased anxiety about like what's happening to us when, when there's just been this lack of dialogue around, around menopause in general, whether it be brain health or, you know, urogenital health or anything, we don't talk about it. So having these studies, I think at least provides an insight into, oh, this is what's happening to my brain. It's still, I'm still normal. I'm still high functioning, but maybe I could do A, B, or C to help support me during this time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your your point, and I I think about this all the time with this new um, diagnostic criteria called subjective cognitive decline. So people who people are often aware of memory loss before, and 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 this is older people now, mm-hmm. uh, older men as well as women. They're aware of their memory loss before any of these standard tests can pick it up. So mm-hmm. the MOCA doesn't really pick it up. And the, certainly the um, mini mental status exam, which is used uh, clinically, doesn't pick it up. They're, 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 you've got to be pretty far along with memory decline for those guys to pick it up. But people are having memory symptoms. And um, on the one hand, I think it's great that this is now that people's accounts of memory problems are being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. That's really important that it be validated because before, they'd be told, oh, you're fine. And they'd get sent away and they'd still have this nagging feeling that they couldn't remember what they needed to remember and their memory was going. On the other hand, um, you know, it's really what people do, what other people do with that information and how they treat it and use it is really what I'm talking about. So I agree with you. Knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. And not, you know, we have to open, we have to open the windows on this. And Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. But, but we have to make sure that when we open the windows, um, that the way other people take it. Yeah, um, like we're not breeding fear in people yeah, that, yeah. you know, they're, yeah. I yeah, hear exactly. what you're saying. But I so think the really fact that, saying. well, I, I think just understanding that um, the memory loss and, you know, the lack of mem- well, memory, again, it just makes us feel well, heard if it's being researched in studies, that's great. But also it makes us feel supported and understood and not alone because what we've found in the research we've done and in the audience that we, not necessarily the audience we have, we find that women are more vocal in our community, which is wonderful, but women don't like to talk about this at all in general. It's still got a stigma to it. It still makes us feel aged and irrelevant. They don't talk about the small symptoms, but you know, there's, there's, we talk about menopause a lot, so we take for granted what people know and don't know. But it's surprising that women, a lot of women, don't really understand the difference between perimenopause and menopause and what happens during perimenopause. And so they don't really research it too much. So they're used to the standard symptoms like hot flashes and hormone rage. But they don't think about, they think we think about our uteruses, I think, when we think about menopause. We don't think about our brain. We don't think about our gut health. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, with menopause, any type of menopause, it's a whole body change. 
um, because estrogens are important for the whole body. Mm -hmm. So it affects bones, it affects heart, you know, it affects the vasculature, which is why people get hot flashes. Mm -hmm. You know, it affects um, the immune system. It affects the gut microbiome and people, people are just beginning to study this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and obviously the brain. And one of the things that we're really interested in is are, are possibly some of the changes we see in, uh, in, in, in your cohort, um, are they due to problems with sleep or are they due to problems with inflammation? And right. so, you know, when we keep inviting you back to, to participate in our sleep study <laughs> or, you know, so we can draw blood, <laughs> it's because we want to see if there are factors that are affecting your memory that are intervenable factors. Right. So if you can't take hormone replacement and it turns out that if people most, you know, there are a whole group of women taking 17 beta estradiol, which is what you think of as estrogen, but it's one of the three um, endogenous estrogens. Those women don't seem to have the same kinds of changes as the women who are not taking 17 beta estradiol as a group. Right. So if somebody decides they don't want to take hormone replacement or they can't take hormone replacement, we want to find other ways of intervening. And one way is if we see that sleep is affected uh, unusually in the women who are not on hormone replacement, then we can find interventions around sleep. Um, so for example, you'll hear this again um, on the thank you night, but maybe not in this much detail. So, but what we're thinking is, well, if we look at oxygen, how much oxygen women get while they're sleeping, if we right. find that the oxygen level is low, then a CPAP might be a really good inter intervention. Now, I don't know whether you're on hormone replacement or not, um, but let's just say you're not. Um, and you, 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 would, you go to your physician and you say, my sleep is terrible. They'll tell you, buck up, you're in menopause. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? That's right. That's, yeah. that's, that's the answer to everything. That's right. That's, uh, that's just the catch-all phrase. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, you might act, there might be something that could be done. You know, if, if menopause is, if the lack of estrogen is leading to problems with your sleep centers and your breathing during um, sleep, well, then a, a real easy intervention is, is a CPAP. But yeah. nobody's looking at it. So we, that's what we want to do. That's what we're trying to do. If, um, if inflammation is a problem, well, one possible intervention is taking anti-inflammatories. Very simple. Mm. An ibuprofen a day. Yeah. Right? So you might not help the whole. So that's what we're trying to see what the mechanism is. And if there are other bodily functions that are affected by the loss of estrogen that actually will then have an effect on the brain. If we could intervene in those, would that help? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, and it sounds like, you know, there is no catch all, right? Like everybody's experience is different. And for one person who might be having sleep issues and another who has increased inflammation, like each one needs to be supported differently through mm -hmm. their journey. Right. That's exactly right. So that's why 
we need to raise awareness that the whole body changes with menopause and it's mm -hmm. not just hot flashes that create sleep problems. Sleep centers in the brain depend on 17 beta estradiol. But it would be fair to say that sleep issues, whatever the reason is, could also be affecting your brain health, your brain fog, your memory. When you're not getting good yeah. sleep, your brain's not functioning properly either. That's right. So it's a double, double whammy, if you will. Mm -hmm. So just to have it dismissed as, oh, this is menopause, that's, that's just not acceptable. I agree. No. It's so dismissive. And it's, it's an easy way out um, to just, you know, get us out of that 15-minute appointment. But we've learned from talking to various experts that when you're having, you know, um, really bothersome symptoms, there's usually something at the root of it, and it's not menopause. You know, it's, there's, there's an opportunity in perimenopause to course correct and to really optimize your health, which is a totally different way of thinking than what we grew up with was when you hit menopause, like, you better hope you don't get it bad because there's nothing you can do. And now we know that we can do things. We can do some explorative research into our own bodies and what's happening and finding a good solution customized for, you know, the symptoms that we're having. Right, right. Now, I don't know if it was true when you were growing up, but when I was growing up, you know, it really wasn't advised for women to engage in athletics in a serious way. You know, you could, you could play a little tennis or maybe mm -hmm. ride a horse every once in a while, you know, but, and so that's <laughs> my generation. Um, your generation is a little bit different, but yeah. I think the shift in understanding that exercise is important for everybody and that in fact rather than exacerbating illnesses exercise actually helps and it certainly helps with the brain um leads one to think you know during perimenopause exercise might be really beneficial for some people mm -hmm. or you know changing their diet a little bit might be really beneficial for some people or going to the doctor and insisting that that they have a sleep test might be really beneficial for some people. Yeah, and I think that's one thing I think is the reoccurring theme in a lot of our conversations is some of the simple things that we can do that probably, you know, during a pandemic, some of us <laughs> avoid <laughs> um, is, you know, the the exercise and also doing the right activities for yourself at certain age groups, yeah. right? Um, and then um, the diet, like eating a healthy, just wholesome food meal plan is the thing to do. Like some of the things that we can do to help with menopause are actually quite simple. It's just being yeah. more regimented and dedicated to living a healthier lifestyle, right? But also understanding what yeah. those changes need to be because in an earlier podcast, we talked about supplements um, at some point. And women using um, melatonin to help them sleep. And our guest had said to us, well, melatonin is great, but your body might only need one milligram to go to sleep and you're taking five milligrams, which is actually counterproductive for you for your sleep. So it's understanding quantities and dosages and the right supplements and the right meal plan. Is it the Mediterranean diet or clean eating? And 
So it's really, it is really about looking at our individual situation and breaking it down and seeing, you know, what those, what those things need to be. But I do feel like why this conversation is so important is because we know we can look at our gut health. We know there's been a lot of research into that. It's our second brain. We know options, some potential options for sleep, just as a, maybe a Band-Aid solution now that we're speaking to you. But we don't know anything about our brain health. And there have been some reports, like um, if you get alerts on menopause on your Google, there have been reports about the link between Alzheimer's and dementia and menopause. And that is scary as hell because you know, what can we do to mitigate that? Like, how strong is that connection? And what kind of menopause, which we had spoken to earlier, like, I, I think a lot of women are really, really concerned about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, as pointed out, it is scary, but it's also important to let the light in, you know, to sort of open the place up and air it out and have the discussion. Yeah. Um, I have to tell you a little secret you probably already know, which is for people to get money to do research, scientific research, they have to link it to a disease. And um, for the research to get play in the media, they have to make it seem like it's a really serious disease. Right. <laughs> so ah. I, Okay. I, you know, I, I, I do think there, there, there are really important things in this focus on menopause with respect to actually the big question, which is why do more women than men have Alzheimer's disease? That's, mm -hmm. that's yep. one reason why menopause and perimenopause are being focused on so much. Right. Um, and that's why I'm focusing on midlife, mm -hmm. actually, because I want to understand it earlier, earlier even than perimenopause. Um, but um, you have to take it with a grain of salt and, um, the grain of salt is what you said, which is each person is very different. Each person has a different family history. Each person has a different, um, even prenatal health history. Right. Um, and each person has a different genetic background. Um, and, um, all of that affects whether perimenopause whether there's going to be a kind of memory decline in perimenopause that is going to forecast Alzheimer's disease. You know, we have all these stages now of Alzheimer's disease, and it turns out the stage mild cognitive impairment, not everybody transitions to Alzheimer's disease. They just live with kind of a bad memory. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't, Yes, estrogen loss definitely affects the brain. Um, it affects some brains more than other brains. Um, and that depends on lifestyle, genetics, luck of the draws, socioeconomic status. You know, one of the things I noticed that's really interesting in this whole research around um, um, early oophorectomy is that there have been a couple of other studies on it, not in women, um, with, with uh, a high risk of cancer. But again, as I said, women who have their ovaries removed for any reason. And there's one study where the effects are really severe. I mean, really, these women do poorly on the mini mental status exam, which is a really crude measure of, of, of um, you have to have lost a lot of neurons. <laughs> um, and um, 
it turns out that this is a, a population of women who have less than a second grade education. Oh. Now, our population, you know. I was going to say, oh my God, I hope it wasn't me. <laughs> no, no, right? right? Your cohort is a cohort, uh, uh, Ramona, that most everybody has, everybody's had, uh, has had university education, and a lot of you have, you know, gotten masters and PhDs. You're in really complex occupations, you're juggling family and children and, uh, you know, parents and husbands. And I mean, it's a really complex life. And all of that is really good for your brain. And your the changes in our cohort are not nearly as uh, severe as the changes in the cohort of women who have a second grade education. Right. So you have to ask yourself when you see these studies, who's in it? Yeah, it's true. Study. That's a really good point. I think actually some of my sleep problems have been my concern about getting Alzheimer's, so now I might sleep better tonight. <laughs> so really, I guess the, the, the short answer around the connection to menopause and Alzheimer's is there, there is a connection, but, it, but there are so many other factors associated with that connection so we all shouldn't be hitting the panic button and thinking that you know regardless of which which of the three menopauses that you're in doesn't necessarily mean that we're as susceptible as somebody else getting all like it might be a hormonal thing but it doesn't necessarily mean like we're getting dementia yeah, yeah. And in fact, in Alzheimer's disease now, what we talk about are modifiable and unmodifiable risk factors. Mm -hmm. and, and there are lots of modifiable risk factors. And that's why, for example, we're interested in sleep and we're interested in um, inflammation because those are modifiable risk factors. Right. You can't modify whether or not you, you carry a, a gene that's a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease like apolipoprotein E4. Right. But you can modify your diet, you can, you can increase your education level, you can engage in complex activities, you can make sure you have good heart health. You know, those are all modifiable. You can make sure you have good sleep. Yeah. Um, so really in Alzheimer's disease, it's, it's not a, you know, there isn't just one thing that's the, that, that is a, a kind of sentence that you're going to get Alzheimer's disease. It's, mm -hmm. We're realizing now that it's a lot of really complex interplay of many, many different factors. And, you know, Ramona, your, your point that um, you need to know what the risks are so that you can start um, counteracting those risks. Yeah. I would take, I would take those studies in that spirit. Mm -hmm. Is there any advice you could give our listeners now as they start to experience, you know, the more mild side effects of, you know, whether we want to call it brain fog or, you know, not remembering people's names or where our keys went or whatever, like, what sort of things can we do to just help our day to day? Well, um, you know, a, a lot of people make notes yes. um, mm -hmm. either on their phones 
I mean, I'd be lost without my um, my calendar that rings when I need to do yes. something. I can't, it can't yeah. keep it all in mind anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and those of us who used to have really good memories, um, we need some helpers. And there are a lot of helpers out there. Um, so mm-hmm. I think compensatory stuff that you can do, organizing your day, having your habits, um, that can help a lot. Um, yeah, I, I just think um, I always am most, you know, I don't exercise enough, but when I do exercise, I get a lot of good ideas. Mm-hmm. It's a real yeah. benefit to me. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the underground parking, you take a picture of your car with the pole closest to it. <laughs> that will also help. I just want to add my little two cents to yeah, that well, because I use my Google Calendar for absolutely everything now. Like yeah. to take mm-hmm. my pills, to do this, to, it doesn't even matter because I will lose track so quickly. Yeah. Well, you know, before the days of, actu- of, of, of everybody knowing how to write and the invention of a, a cheap writing surface like paper, which was a huge technological advance, people believed that you remembered things by repeating them in different rooms in your house so that you would associate the thing you needed to remember with a given room and something else you needed to remember with another room. So there were a lot of memory techniques and they actually, um, they, for a while, uh, you know, people were worried that with, with the invention of writing, people would lose their memories because they wouldn't have to train themselves to do these things. So this has been, yeah, I mean, this has been a concern really since uh, memory loss has been going on for a long time (laughs) but I I, do feel like even when I'm trying to remember something like I still carry like even when I'm working I often write notes in like a physical like scribbler versus um using like my computer because I feel like I remember things better when I'm writing them versus typing it out yeah I heard that you do even when you write a journal they say you should handwrite it um, there's more of a connection to the thought than just typing it out. Yeah, well, motor centers in the brain are very connected to memory. Um, so I, I do think, you know, I mean, maybe some people, maybe, maybe some people get a lot out of the, uh, the poking on their, on their iPhone, but um, I think actually writing something out, it takes time, you're considering it, and it's mixed in with this motor um motor kind of memory that's important so yeah i think i think these um strategies are are really helpful things i think you know keeping your life complex i think is is really beneficial saying yes to things and not no to things because you're afraid um if if we're if we're talking to an older audience um if you start to have hearing problems definitely get your hearing checked right definitely hearing aids um actually uh, there was a a a really important study that came out in a journal called the lancet that found that the highest risk factor for alzheimer's disease was actually hearing loss Mm -hmm. oh i did hear that yeah so um the minute you start you know there's so much stigma against hearing hearing loss and wearing hearing aids because again like menopause all of a sudden it makes you feel old that's right um it's that category but you know young people have hearing loss too and um hearing aids are pretty darn good now 
So yeah. I think that's a really important thing to look to. Yeah, that's a really important point. I, and I've heard like, you know, I guess it's true all the things they say about, you know, keeping your brain healthy by like doing puzzles or, or yeah, like brain yeah. twisters or things like that and keeping busy, whether it be physically or mentally all the time, it, it does help support your brain long term. So yeah. Ramona and I can't let our husbands listen to this podcast because just last weekend we were complaining about how complex our lives are because of them <laughs> and how angry All that made us. There's a point of diminishing returns. <laughs> yes. That's right. Well, and I think, you know, and again, another reoccurring theme on the podcast is, you know, the in which the age range that is typically when you fall into menopause um, is a lot of the time the most stressful and exciting time in a woman's life. They're at the height of their careers. They're raising a family. They're maybe caring for elderly parents. All of those things that we talk about on the podcast yeah. where you need the running list of a million things that yeah. as women, we just inherently take on, whether we like to or not, um, might be saving our brains after all. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, I just be sure that you give yourself time to also relax and have some endorphins. Right. Because um, there, you need pleasure. You mm -hmm. absolutely need pleasure. And when it's not pleasure anymore, if you can let it go, do. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, if I were giving a lecture right now, I would show a slide to you that shows when estrogens are high on neurons in a particular part of the brain that plays a role in memory, the hippocampus, when estrogens are high, there's lots and lots of connections between neurons in that region. And when estrogen is low, there are fewer connections. Mm -hmm. So if you think of those connections as the sort of what facilitates memory um, with fewer of the connections, then it's harder to remember. And it's, um, I guess that's what I think about all the time when I think about my study, our study, is um, that with estrogen loss, um, you're, you're risking the disconnection between neurons. And neurons right. need connection with each other in order to function optimally. Yeah, that makes sense. And I have that visual now in my mind. So I think that'll be really helpful for our listeners. Yeah, that was yeah. a, that was a good that example. Great. But that doesn't mean that experience doesn't do the same thing. So estrogens do that, but actually experience builds up neural circuits as well. So that's why there are compensatory things that can be done. Um, and it's always important to remember that. But I'm so appreciative that you have this podcast because not only would I like to dispel the, I mean, I appreciate you're wanting to dispel the the negativity around menopause because it actually for many women is an incredibly freeing part of life. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have responsibility for your children often. You can just let go and do what you've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and also women tend to get to the point where um, 
they don't care what anybody thinks about them either. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the best part. <laughs> that is the best part. <laughs> yeah. So that can be pretty, pretty liberating. So if we could just dispel the idea that first of all, all menopauses are the same. And second of all, they're all negative. It's all negative because yeah. it isn't all negative. It isn't. Thank you so much. This yeah. was so great. Yes. I think actually got, we were coming into this podcast really worried about what you were going to tell us. And <laughs> we're now leaving. we feel better. Now we feel better. We're not as mad as our, our husbands because they're trying to help us. And we're going to sleep better knowing all this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. And if you don't, go get a sleep test. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jillian, for joining us. Yeah, uh, that was great. Thank you. Keep that was great. Up.